But as we look at uh, the Lord's Prayer this morning, I just want to read it once again for us. And beginning in verse 9, it says, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As we come to this section of the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer, in verse 12, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Uh, That's one thing that a lot of us um, just kind of take for granted sometimes, that our sins are trespasses our debts have been uh, forgiven and uh, also down in verse 14 you can continue this it says if if you forgive men their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive men their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses Um, interesting a lot of misunderstanding about those verses and that's what we want to attempt to begin to look at this morning But this petition that's before us really reaches out to the first spiritual aspect of of man's need. Remember, the first three segments of this prayer are dealing with the glory of God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then it turns to the need that we have before God. God's still glorified in all this because only he could provide us our daily bread, it says. Only he could forgive us our sins and only he uh, can lead us not into temptation. Um, And so as we look at those second set of three there that deal with man's need, the first one we dealt with last week, the physical provision that God provides for us. And we talked a lot about food and different stuff and we won't do that this morning because it just makes us hungry. But we got some goodies over in the fellowship afterwards to, to help you out with that. So you can, you can make your way over there afterwards. But last week we talked about how God has so richly provided for us. And uh, in our country we don't often think of that. We don't think of praying where is our next meal going to come from because we're so richly provided for. And we said this probably isn't a, uh, a request for daily food. It's more of an uh, affirmation that God gives us our daily bread. It's affirming that God is our provider. It's turning our attention from the world's resources, and it's saying, you know what? It's God who provides. It doesn't matter whether it's your job or whether it's your family or whether it's you know, the house you live in, whatever you have in your pantry at home. It's God is the ultimate provider of all those things. And you say, yeah, why work hard? Why would it be God doing it? I'm the one out there sweating every day. Well, God gives you the ability to work. You could be laid up somewhere in a hospital unit. You know, without the ability to work, living on welfare or something, you know. But God has given you the ability to to earn a day's wage, and he's provided for you in that way. At every facet of our life, he's provided for us. And it's interesting because you come to Father's Day, and sometimes Father's Day, as well as Mother's Day, can be a bittersweet thing. Some people, boy, they embrace it, and boy, they got a great family, and a wonderful dad, a wonderful mom, and boy, they just, you know, love. And other people, boy, they see the day coming months ahead, and they're just, ah, just sends chills up their spine because maybe they didn't have a good childhood. Maybe their father didn't treat them the way they should have. Maybe they lost their father uh, early in age, whatever it might be. But, you know, it's, it's, it's neat to understand that even above our physical father, that God is our provider, and he continues to provide for our basic necessities. Doesn't mean he's going to give you, a, you know, a nice brand new black Cadillac in your in your uh, driveway tomorrow, but he provides for the basics. He provides for your your needs. He promises to do that. And so, th- this section here, when he says, "Forgive us our debts," sometimes we forget the problem that sin is today in our world. We forget the aspect of sin and how it's taken over. This, this world that we live in. It's probably the greatest, it is the greatest human need of the human heart. You stop and think about it. And it's, it's so neat to see that God has provided for us. He's provided the forgiveness of sin. Think if he didn't do that. Think if he said, hey, you sin, you're in your own, you got your own problems. Don't come to me with it. And sin has kind of a twofold effect, if you think about it. First of all, it damns men forever in the future. 
unforgiven sin will damn you forever in a dark and, and horrible place, a pit called hell, forever and ever. And hell is a very real place. The Bible describes it as such. And we fail to remember sometimes that people go there on a daily basis because their sin has not been forgiven. So it has that effect. It has the potential to damn men and women and children, whoever, forever if they don't come to Christ. Obviously, we believe that there's some kind of allotment for babies and those who are beyond the the realm of understanding. But for the most part, when a sinner dies with unforgiven sin, they're sent to a place called hell. That's kind of a future effect that it has. But it even has an effect presently on our lives as we live in this day. And we've all felt the effect of sin in our lives every day. It robs men and women and and kids of the fullness of life. Because it bears upon the conscience this unrelieved and unrelenting guilt. Because deep down inside we know that we're guilty. We know that we're sinners. Even the the most hardcore person that says, you know, hey, I'm a good person, you can pretty much, if you talk to them long enough, help them to realize that, you know what, they're not as perfect as they think they are. That they too have committed a sin before a holy God. And so we all face this problem. It's a universal problem. And it brings immediate consequences, but it also has future consequences. And when we fall into sin, even as believers, we deal with guilt and we deal with the loss of you know, the, the meaningfulness of life and different things. It's, it's a problem today. John Stott, in his book, Confess Your Sins, he quoted the head of the largest British hospital, hospital, and he said this, I could dismiss half of my patients tomorrow if they were assured of forgiveness. See, unforgiveness, sin has this effect even on our health. The Bible says that. When David didn't confess his sin, it affected him physically. It's the deepest need spiritually. It's not talking about physical resources anymore. He switches gear. He's got, he covered the daily bread. Now he's dealing with us as spiritual beings, not just physical beings. And he wants us to understand that the deepest spiritual need that a man has is first he needs forgiveness for his sin. And you say, well, why didn't he put that first then? Because you have to be alive in order to be forgiven. So you have to have physical sustenance first. That's why he says, first of all, let's give us our daily bread. Let's keep us alive. Secondly, you've got this problem known as sin and you need forgiveness from God. And there's not a person here this morning that could say, oh, I don't need that. I'm perfect. I've never sinned. See, we serve a holy God. And his eyes are, are purer than anything we can ever even relate to. And he can't look upon iniquity. Uh, the Bible says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. See, we've kind of lost that aspect, that attribute of God, that he is a holy God. He's set apart from us. He's not our buddy. He's not our friend. I mean, yes, he brings us into that friendship relationship. But so many times we, we kind of grow complacent with it. And we think that we can just, you know, march into God's presence even though we have the right to do it whenever we want, however we want, and just kind of dump something on him. And he's got to, you know, we demand something from him or whatever, and he's got to just jump like a little errand boy. We forget that God is holy. There's no way that an absolutely holy God can possibly entertain the presence of anything unholy. And so if we're to have a relationship with God, there's this spiritual thing called sin in our life and we need forgiveness for it because God can't have a relationship with anything that's anything less than holy. And so in verse 12 of our text, he mentions the word forgive twice. In verse 14, he mentions it twice. In verse 15, he mentions it two more times. Six times he stresses in this section here talking about forgiveness. 
Now, this prayer is, is intent on glorifying God, and we've, we've looked at that, the priority of the program, the, the paternity of God, the purpose, the provision, and now the pardon. It all focuses on God. It's not to focus on us, and we've talked about how prayer is not to, to focus on us so much as it is us to focus on God. We don't go to God just because we've got a problem and say, hey, fix it. You know, we go to God because, God, somehow you've allowed this problem in my life. Give me the strength to deal with it. Prayer is not just a way that we can change our circumstances. It's really a way that we can, uh, our circumstances can change us to the point where we're, we're doing what God wants us to do. And so in verse 12, he comes to this aspect of forgiveness. And I just want to quickly give you four principles, I think are listed in your outline there, about biblical principles concerning sin and forgiveness. Because this is kind of a, a, a thing that people get confused. I've talked to Christians who've been Christians for years, and they're riddled with guilt over something that happened years ago. And so they fail to understand the idea of sin and, and God's forgiveness. There's something wrong there. I'm not saying you should just sin and say, oh, well, I'm forgiven. Who cares? I'm going to go sin some more. A Christian wouldn't do that. It's dishonoring to God. But there's four biblical principles here that basically touch on four words. And each word is, I think, underlined or italicized there in your your outline. And the first one is sin makes man guilty and brings judgment. You say, well, that's nothing new. No, it's not. It's very basic. But like I said, sometimes we need to be reminded of the basic things of our faith. I think any of us who have been Christians for any time, it doesn't matter where you live in the world, we know that sin makes man guilty before God and that God has to judge it. That's just a very basic biblical principle. It's a bottom line. That's the human dilemma, if you think about it. That's what's wrong with mankind. Man is a sinner and that's his problem. He has to be judged by God. Now, the Bible says sin is lawlessness. In 1 John 3, 4, it says sin is lawlessness. Sin is breaking God's law. Sin is the idea that you're going to violate a standard that God has set up to be kept. In Romans 3, 19, it says that we are therefore guilty before God. We break his laws, therefore we become guilty. That's just the way it works. Romans 6 says because we are guilty, it says the, the, the wages of our sin... Or the penalty of our, sin, of our sin, the sentence that God dishes out to us is what? Is death. Spiritual death. Sometimes physical death. So man is a sinner because he's lawless. He breaks God's laws. Have you ever broken God's law? It doesn't take too long to establish somebody who's broken God's law. You just start off, you know, have you ever told a lie? That's the number one thing. Have you ever told a lie? In your whole life, have you ever said something that wasn't true? Well, yeah. Well, what does that make you? It makes you a liar. God says that that breaks his law. You shouldn't bear false witness. Have you ever taken something irrespective of its value that's not yours? Have you ever stolen anything? We all have at some point. It could be as simple as, you know what, taking stealing time from your employer because you put down the wrong amount on a time card and nobody ever found out about it. That's stealing. I'm not saying you go in and hold up a 7-Eleven. Maybe you did that too. I don't know. But we've all done that at some point. Or maybe we've thought a bad thought. We can go right through the whole thing. We don't need to. We've all sinned and we've all broken God's law and therefore we're guilty. And the judgment for that guilt is, the Bible says, death. Spiritual death. We have to be judged. So man is guilty and that brings judgment. Second biblical principle concerning forgiveness. Forgiveness is offered by God on the ground of Christ's death. This is so important to understand. It's simple, but it's so important to grasp. That forgiveness is offered by God on the ground of Christ's death. See, God isn't up there just saying, Oh, I feel good today. I think I'll forgive you. He has to have a way to forgive you. God couldn't just wake up one day and say, oh, too bad, Adam and Eve sinned. Oh, well, you know, I just forgive you. No, there was consequences to that sin. God is a just God. 
What kind of judge would it be if we went down to uh, a traffic court and somebody was standing next to you and they got a ticket at the same red light you did? By the way, they're running a little sting down here on, on Jefferson and Upton, so be careful with the crosswalk people. Not that I know by experience, but I was down there watching him for a, about a half hour last week, and they must have pulled over between 50 and 75 cars at 198 bucks a pop. You know, go, revenue, Redwood City, okay. But, you know, that's, just be careful because they're, they're, they're using undercover people to walk kind of in front of the cars, and when you don't stop at the right point, boy, you're getting a ticket. But if you went to that judge and they got a ticket for running the crosswalk and you got a ticket for running the crosswalk and they went first and the judge looked at him and said, oh, you're Harold's brother, aren't you? Yeah, okay, don't worry about it. I'll just write it off. And then you get up there and say, okay, $198. What would you say about that judge? Crooked judge, right? He's not a just judge. Recently, we found this, this individual in the ninth, I think he was on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals or whatever. He uh, you know, made a ruling on pornography and all this stuff only to find out that what's happening. He's got it on his home computer. Huh. Okay, something wrong there. See, God is not that way. God is a just God. If he's going to forgive us our sin, he has to have a way to do it. God is holy. He sees sinful man, sinful woman, sinful society. We also realize that God is merciful. He's loving and he's forgiving. So that forgiveness is offered to mankind. And the Bible says that even though we are guilty and we stand in judgment, God has the ability through Christ to forgive us. The Bible says that he will remember our sin no more. That he will pass over our iniquities. That he will bury them in the depths of the sea. He will remember, remove them as far as the east is from the west. Have you ever gone out in your backyard and started to measure the east from the west? Can't do it. All throughout the prophets and the apostles of the scripture, there's an unceasing promise, unwavering promise that God is a God of forgiveness. He wants to forgive our sins. But he just can't do it. He just can't say, forgiven. <laughs> there has to have a way. He has to take the penalty of our sins and bring it to its fullness because he's a just God. He's a righteous God. And that sin has to be paid. The penalty of sin has to be paid. The ticket has to be paid. So Christ went to the cross and he said, you know what? I'm going to pay your ticket. I'm going to die for your sins. That's what that means when Christ died for our sins, that he took them upon himself. Even though he never, ever committed one sin, he took on all the sin of all the people who would ever claim to know him and believe in his name upon himself. And he paid the price. Forgiveness is offered by God on the ground of Christ's death. Third principle I want you to look at is confession of sin is necessary to receive that forgiveness of God. You say, well, I thought our salvation was free. It is. But it costs Christ dearly. It costs God his own son. But confession of sin is necessary to receive that forgiveness from God. What do I mean by that? Stop and think about it. If, 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 if you don't think that you need forgiveness, why would you ever ask for it? If you go before a court judge and you don't think you need the mercy of the court and you never ask for it, well, then you're not going to get it. See, forgiveness is available. The penalty has been paid for. It's satisfied everything that God required. It's only a matter of receiving that gift. That's basic to the reception. And, and what's basic to it is, is the, the, the confession of sin. If I have two big juicy hamburgers up here and I say, here, whoever wants these, you can eat them during the service, whatever. Put them on a plate with fries and they're making you hungry, aren't they? You got to hang around afterwards. But, you know, so you take this, you know, I put them up here and, and no one comes up to get them. What, what's my assumption? That you, you don't, you're not hungry or you're not willing to admit you're hungry. That's more the case. 
And see, sometimes people don't come to Christ. People don't realize that they're a sinner before a holy God. They're unwilling to confess their sin. They're unwilling to say the same thing about their sin that God does, that it grieves his heart. Paul in Acts uh, 20 says, Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ results in salvation. How is someone saved? Someone's saved when they recognize they need to be saved. That's the first step. That's the baby step toward salvation. You have to know that you're lost. See, so many times we share the gospel with people today and we, we skip over that part. You know, we start with God has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, wait a minute. What about repentance? What about sin? What about personal acknowledgement of that sin? I think that's a little precursor before God has a wonderful plan for your life. Because unless you do those things, the wonderful plan God has for your life doesn't sound too wonderful to me when I read Scripture if you die in your sin. 1 John 1.9 says basically in effect the ones who are confessing their sin are the ones giving evidence of those who have been forgiven. That God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin when we confess them. Confession of sin is a manifestation that's necessary basic to forgiveness you can't have forgiveness without the willingness to confess your sin and when you come to god who's a holy god and you recognize him as such and then you look at yourself and you say yeah i'm not holy i do have sin how do we fix this then god says now i can work with you have you ever dealt with somebody who is Maybe they're, you're putting something together or you're helping somebody on a project. And you know how to do it. Maybe you've done it before and this person is just dead set on just doing it their own way. And you kind of patiently, you know, sit there and you're watching them, you know, put the bolts in the wrong holes and, you know, they get the thing together and it's just a mess. The whole thing doesn't even work or whatever. And they're, but they're unwilling to listen at all during the process. You're trying to tell them, you know, hey, wait, you might want to try it. No, 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 I'm going to do it this way. It just never seems to work out when you have that kind of an attitude toward life. There are some people in the world that have the attitude, hey, you know what, I know what's best for me and that's it. I'm my own God. Don't tell me about you know, the Bible. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear about this. I don't want to hear about this sinner stuff. I don't want to hear anything about that. See, they're not willing to bow their knee. They're not willing to confess their sin. Therefore, they can't obtain salvation. You can never, ever be saved unless you kind of are sorry for what you've done. That's the first step. In the Beatitudes, we looked at this earlier when we were in chapter 5. If you want to enter my kingdom, you must come as a beggar. You can't waltz into God's kingdom. Hey, look at me. I'm here now. (laughs) You needed me here, God. You know, that's why you saved me. I know. No, you can't come to God with that kind of an attitude. And sometimes I think that's the attitude that we approach God. It almost like God needs us to be on his team because we're so gifted in this area or that area. That's far from the truth. He wants somebody who comes as a beggar and cries out and says, God, be merciful to me. Turn over to Luke chapter 18 real quick. Luke 18. This is the attitude. You want to be saved. If you're not saved here this morning, this is how you get saved. This is the attitude that you come before Christ Jesus is speaking different parables here. And in in Luke 18, verse 9, it says, Also he spoke the parable to some who trusted, where? In themselves that they were righteous. In other words, they didn't think there was anything wrong with them. Pretty good eggs. And they despised others. They looked down their noses at others. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. And you have to understand, a Pharisee was a religious leader of that time. It was somebody who wore all the religious garb, the, you know, the cloaks and the collar, all sorts of stuff. So when you saw this person walking down the street, you knew what they did. That's a, you know, it's kind of like with the Catholic Church, you have the, the collar, the priest. Well, you know that. You know, I remember when I, I went down to uh, uh, visit, I think it was somebody at the uh, Veterans Hospital. And the nurse got, she wouldn't believe me that I was, well, she wouldn't believe me I was a chaplain. She definitely didn't believe me that I was a uh, pastor. And she was Filipino. And she just said, you don't have a collar on. I'm like, well, I do. It's just not, you know, I mean, I've got a collar on my shirt. Does that count? I don't even think I had that. I think I was wearing a T-shirt. 
But, you know, I said, well, I don't wear a collar. Well, then you're not a, you're not a clergyman. I said, you know, she just had a very kind of different view of what that, that means. And some people, they, they, they think that because they wear certain things or they, they act a certain way, that that makes them something. You know, they're, they're all caught up in themselves. Well, that's what this guy was, a Pharisee. And it says the other was a tax collector. The tax collector, he was the, the worst possible person in society as far as a job. Because basically, he was someone who stole from his own people to give to the Roman government. And then made a profit doing it. And they, they were just despised. Well, these two people, it says, go to the temple to pray. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Notice, he prays with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. You can see him kind of looking over the crowd of people that are gathered to prayer. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this guy over here, this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Do you, do you hear the arrogance in that? I mean, there are people like that, beloved, even in the church today. That's how they look at, you know, the whole, the whole thing, whether it's serving, whether it's giving, or whatever. It's like, hey, you know, you need me. Verse 13. Look at the difference. And the tax collector standing afar off. In other words, he didn't even feel worthy to, to bring himself into the kind of the inner parts of, of the temple there, standing afar off. Pharisee marched straight up front in front of everybody. Standing afar off, it says that he began, he would not as much raise his eyes to heaven, a sign of humility. Couldn't even look up to the heavens. It says, but he beat his breast. It's a sign of mourning in that culture. You see it even today when you, you see on the news, whether there's a bombing or whatever, and they lose loved ones and they're beating their, their breasts, and they have, you know, that's just what they do. And he said this, God, be merciful to me, what? A sinner. He had it right. He realized his own de- depravity before a holy God. And Jesus concludes here in verse 14. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. What's that mean? That means made right with God. That means declared righteous. Having his sin paid for, atoned for because of his attitude, because he was willing to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he meant it from his heart. You could tell by his demeanor. He went down to his house justified rather than the other. And then it says this, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And you say, well, that doesn't always happen. I know a lot of bad people that, you know what, they're making a lot more money than I am, and they're climbing the ladder of success a lot, and they're doing it all wrong. But you know what? I don't see God humbling them at all. Well, you just wait. Because that's a promise that you can bank on. They will be humbled. And if it's not in this life, it will definitely be in the next life. And that is not a place I would want to be humbled (laughs) in the next life. See, sin is this problem that that is universal. And what is our reaction to it? That's what's going to depend on, are we saved or not? It's very basic. God is eager and he's anxious to forgive the one who confesses their sin. That's what he wants to do. He's faithful, still righteous to keep us, cleansing us, the Bible says, from all of our sin. But we have to come to him humbly. We have to come to him with a broken heart. Fourth principle there is forgiving one another is an essential part of receiving forgiveness for ourselves. This is a big one. Forgiving one another is an essential part of receiving forgiveness for ourselves. In other words, forgiving one another... That's, that's, that's very basic to our own forgiveness. And sometimes we read verses 14 and 15 back in Matthew 6. And we say, wow, does that mean that we're only going to get forgiven when we forgive? Is that what that means? 
And we get confused because it looks like forgiveness from God requires that we forgive somebody else. And see, they make the assumption then that you've got to start forgiving people before you can get saved. And that just turns it into another work. And a lot of people say, well, you know, we don't understand. You know, I'm never going to have forgiveness from God until I'm, I've forgiven somebody else. Is that what that means? I mean, how can you forgive somebody else if you're not even a Christian? How can you do a righteous act, what the Bible calls is a righteous act, if you're not righteous in your nature? You may act righteous. That's a different story. Are you righteous in your nature? Have you been converted? Have you been transformed from the darkness and sin of this world into the light presence of God's kingdom? See, it's a whole misunderstanding here. Keep those four principles because we're going to touch on them again. But you look at the different words that I associated. Principle number one, sin makes men, what, guilty. Number two, forgiveness is offered by God on the ground of Christ's death. Confession of sin is necessary to receive the forgiveness of God. And the last one, forgiving one another is an essential if we are to be forgiven. The first one is sin makes us guilty. Then you have forgiveness being offered by God. Then confession. And then forgiving one another. Well, let's look at our text. Because it's important to deal with what he's talking about here in Matthew 6. He says, if we forgive and and forgive us our, our debts, forgive us our sin, um, When we think of, of, of that word sin, I mean, we, we, we know it's a problem. We've just discussed that. Every man is sinful. There's not one person that's not. Romans 3 says all have fallen short of God's mark. There's none righteous, no, not one. And, and that's why God put that in there, no, not one, because somebody would have said that, well, wait a minute, that excludes me. No, he's saying absolutely everybody is sinful. They've all gone their own way. They've all become unprofitable. And the Greek word there means to go sour like bad milk. Have you ever had bad milk, sour milk? Ugh, nasty stuff. Go into the coffee shop down here once in a while and I pour the half and half into a small cup of coffee. You know, and you see it curdling. Oh, you know it's bad. It's just bad. If you don't catch it, it's... You know, well, that's, that's kind of what this is viewed at. There's nobody... It's, 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 it's good. All of sin comes short of God's glory. We, we know all these things, okay? David said, in sin, my mother did conceive me. So from the very beginning, over in, in, even in Jeremiah 13, 23, it says, can the Ethiopian change his color? Can a leopard change his spots? You have just as much a chance to do good who are accustomed to doing evil. In other words, sin is this thing that just possesses everybody. It's right across the board. And it's a spiritual problem. And it has to be dealt with in a spiritual way. Now in verse 12, that word debt is used. And then in some translations in verse 14 and 15, you have the word trespasses. And I just want to kind of give you a brief overview of these different Greek words that are being used here. One of the first Greek words that we run into in the Bible dealing with sin, basically it has the idea of missing the mark and we've all heard this, okay? It's like you've, you're, you're going out to shoot your, your bow and arrow in the backyard and you pull back and you let it go and you totally miss the target, totally. You know, you don't just miss a little bit off. You're, you're totally off, off target. That's the idea of that first word there that you have in your outline. And all are guilty of this. We all fall short. It's kind of like going down to Pier 39. I've used this before, and we're all lined up there, and some of you are more athletic than others, and we say, okay, you know, a million dollars to the first guy that jumps to Alcatraz from the end of Pier 39. Well, you can try all you want. You can train all you want. You can do, you know, you can bring in the best trainers in the world. There's no way you're ever going to make it from Pier 39, humanly possible, to jump and land on the island of Alcatraz. It's just impossible. Well, see, sometimes that's how we need to view our sin, that we all are impossible of hitting God's mark. It's impossible for us to do it. 
As a matter of fact, it's so impossible. Jesus in Matthew 5, 48, he gave us the standard. What did he say? He said, you know what? You need to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. If you can pull that off, then you've made the mark. Well, none of us are perfect. The second word deals with the idea of crossing the line. And these begin with kind of the just missing the mark, and they grow in intensity in the original language. It's kind of like, you know, when you see the little sign, keep off the grass or don't touch wet cement. What do people do? They just want to do it. Or wet paint. You know, I, so many times, I've seen people, you know, you see a park bench or something, it says wet paint on it. And they go up. Oh, is this wet? And they touch it. And they're like, yeah, what do you think? I mean, the sign says it's wet. Kind of silly. And so these words grow in intensity. And the third word there has the idea of total lawlessness. It's a flagrant breaking of God's law. It's a rebellion against God. And it kind of just continues in its, its nature here down. And this is the, the, the word that, that basically, you know, as you, you continue down here, they, they grow in intensity. Verses 14 and 15 use that word trespass, which means to slip or to fall. In verse 12, it's the last word. And it's, it's, it's kind of an idea that has, brings the idea of, of owing a debt that you could never pay. That's how flagrant this is. You, you've sinned to the point where it's just beyond, I mean, I mean any sin is, but in the intensity of this, this word, it, it means that the sin you owe God is, is just a consequence, or the debt you owe God is a consequence of your sin. And there's no way that you'll ever get out of this by yourself. That's the word he uses there. Now, I think that it's important for us to understand that, you know, God's word is pretty exact when he explains certain things. But all these words sum up basically that we all have the problem of sin. We all have this massive debt. We used to sing a song in youth group, uh, I owe a, a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. And, and you know, it goes on. I can't remember the rest of it. But um, it, it, it was kind of a neat little song. And I thought, you know, that's so true. When we come to God for salvation, we have to recognize, first of all, that, you know what, we cannot just march into his presence and say, hey, you know, just, just you know, Forgive me, whatever, if we're not willing to confess our sin first. They were, people in the Bible had a broken spirit when they came before God. Even Peter said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Even Paul said, I am the chief of all sinners. And Jesus taught all men everywhere to pray in this way, forgive us our debts. So you can't sit here this morning and say, well, that's not a problem that I have. Okay, it's not a problem that I have. We all have that. So the first word, sin, covered basically in a lot of different ways there. Second word, forgiveness. If sin is the problem, then forgiveness is God's provision for the problem. If sin is the problem, then God is is providing for us through forgiveness. He says, forgive us our debts in verse 12. And you notice here, it's a collective prayer. It doesn't say, forgive me of my sin. He uses the word us. And basically, it encompasses all believers. There's a sense of community here. See, that's, that's where churches get in trouble, when that sense of community breaks down. When there's, there's a, a miscommunication or there's, there's, there's kind of a, a fracturing of the body of Christ, even in a local small church like ours. Because maybe some people feel better than others. And so there's that fracturing there. What God is saying here is that, you know what? We're all in this together. And that, that's one reason why here we believe in, in, in want to promote our, our small groups. Because it's in those small groups when you get together with 10 or 12 other people, you know, over a period of time, you begin to talk about things you would never talk about on Sunday morning. And there's some built-in accountability. And all of a sudden, you're beginning to grow together and that sense of community is there. So it's an advertisement for small groups. If you're not in one, you need to be in one. It's just, it's good. It's good for your spiritual growth. It's good for the church. But in those groups, sometimes you, you see things in people that you wouldn't see just passing by on a Sunday. 
So it builds up that sense of community. But forgiveness is this, basically. Forgiveness is God passing over our sin. I mean, if you want a definition, God is wiping out our sin off the record. Our grandkids have these little doodle things that you, I don't know if it's magnetic or whatever, but you can draw on them, then you take the thing, it's kind of like an etching sketch, and you wipe it away. And, uh, you know, it's, it's such a cool little device because, you know, you can draw things or whatever, and if you don't like it, just whoosh, you have a brand new page there. Um, that's what God does with our sin. He wipes our sin off the record. It's God setting us free from the, any aspect of punishment or guilt that we may have. In Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, the word of God says this, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He doesn't retain his anger forever. He delights in unchanging love. Yet he will again have compassion on us, and he will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all your sins into the depths of the sea. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. That's what God does. He remembers them no more. He passes over our sin. Forgiveness is taking away our sin. It's covering up our sin. It's blotting out our sin. It's forgiving our sin. Isaiah 53, 6 says this. He has taken the iniquity of us and he laid it on who? On him, on Christ, on the cross. He's taken away our sins and then it means it's, he's, he's covered our sins. Psalm 85, 2 says, Thou hast covered all their sin. He also says he blotted out our sin. Isaiah 43, 25. I am he that blots out your transgressions. He says, then he forgets our sin. He remembers them no more. God literally, and you've got to understand this, literally eliminates our sin in Christ. If you ever get to a place in your Christian life where this becomes kind of just commonplace stuff, and you, you, it no longer brings joy to your heart that God has wiped out your sin, we got a problem. You're a little dry spiritually somewhere. We should be so thankful that God has reached down, given us Christ, and forgiven us of our sin. And it's only possible because of Christ. He couldn't just say, hey, I'm going to pass over your sin because I like you. <laughs> There's nothing in it for him to like because we're all riddled with sin. So when we talk about forgiveness, there's different kinds of forgiveness. Two different kinds basically mentioned in the Bible. The first one is judicial forgiveness, and we're just going to end with this. Judicial forgiveness. And this views God as a judge. This views God as a judge. The other one's uh, parental forgiveness. And obviously that would view God as a father. But today... Just in closing here for a couple minutes, I want to look at judicial forgiveness. See, in the same way the judge would exact your punishment in court, all right, Christ, God, basically, on the basis of Christ's death, he bore our punishment, he took our guilt, he paid for your sin. The price is it's accomplished, it's done. He says, based on Christ's work and your belief in that, I'm declaring you righteous. It's a judicial act. It's full. It's complete. It's, it's positional. That's our standing before God. See, this is why it's so important to understand this because if this is the fact, if we're judicially righteous after he has forgiven us before God, who are we to say, no, we can take that back or I can lose my salvation or I can become unrighteous? No, you can't. Not before God because he's the judge. It would be like going to traffic court and say, well, I disagree with your decision. The judge is going to say, I don't care. Get out of here. Pay the fine or you'll go to jail. You know, you, you, you can't just say, well, who are you to you know, give me a ticket or exact this punishment? You can't do that. Well, even more so with God. And when God says, you know what? You've been forgiven. It doesn't stutter. He doesn't say, well, you know, if you've done this or this, but you haven't done that. Or No, he says, if you've come to me and you've confessed your sin... And you've come to me in a humble way and you, you, you request forgiveness from me. I forgive you judicial, judicially. It's done. 
It happens at a point in time. The act of judicial forgiveness of all of our sins, past, present, future, those that we've committed, those that we are committed, committing now, even as you sit here maybe, and those that you will commit later. All of our sin has been completely and forever forgiven and that we're justified from all those things forever. When does this happen? It happens the moment that you come to Christ and you admit your sin and your need for him in your life. That's when that happens. The moment you are saved, the moment you're redeemed, use whatever word you want, the moment you're born again, the moment you place your faith and your trust in Christ, your sin leaves you and it goes on him. And he already paid for that. That's Romans 3. We're declared righteous, positionally and forever. All of our sin is covered, it's passed over, it's blotted out, and he also forgets it. I mean, isn't that incredible? And you know what? He just keeps on doing it. I mean, God could have come up with a plan that said, okay, you know what? I'm going to forgive all your sins from this day back. And until the day you die, if you sin, you're on your own. Well, you know, how long would, it, how long would we be? I mean, we'd maybe be saved, what, an hour, a couple minutes? Maybe if we're really, really holy a, a day before we sin again? He didn't do that. He said, no, it's all covered. That's what Christ did. That's why Christ died on the cross. In Matthew 26, 28, when he held up the cup, he said, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is for what? The forgiveness of sin. Ephesians 1, 7, Paul said, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin sins. In 1 John 2, 12, it says, I write unto you little children because your sins are what? Forgiven for his name's sake. In Ephesians 4, 32, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. See, in other words, because Christ took all of our sin and he paid the penalty when we believe in Christ and we accept his sacrifice for our sin, God appropriates it on our behalf. Judicially, we're declared righteous at that point in time. And we're declared that way, not just for that moment, but forever. For sins past, present, and future. And you say, was this just a New Testament thing? Does this just happen in the New Testament? No, I don't believe so. I think it happened in the Old Testament too. I think you were saved in the Old Testament just like people are saved in the New Testament. By believing in God. By submitting yourself to God. I think redemption in the Old Testament was just as momentary, just as instantaneous as it is for us in the New Testament. You recall in, uh, for example, you you take Abraham and James, when it comments on James 2.23, it says, Abraham what? Believed God. All right. At that moment, it says that he was it, all God's, the righteousness of Christ was imputed on him. And it became his righteousness. And he was called what? A friend of God after that point. He didn't have to work any harder than we have to work today. We don't work for our salvation. We come to Christ on the belief and faith that Christ died for our sins. It was the moment he was saved. Same thing happens in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 4, again, it says, Abraham believed God and it was what? Counted to him for righteousness. To him that believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. From that moment on, Abraham believed. And throughout his life, God never imputed sin to him again because his sins were placed on Christ, even though Christ hadn't gone to the cross yet. I mean, we're post-Christ. We're after after the time of Christ. We're after the cross of Christ. He was pre-Christ. But you know what? All of the sins of all the saints of all the ages, at the moment they believed, were put on Christ at that one point in time. Because Christ is basically the, the apex of history. And whether you lived on this side of the cross, the back side of the cross, or the front side of the cross, it doesn't matter. He still bore all of our sin. And by that act of faith at that point, 
Christ's redemption, the value of Christ's redemption is applied to us. Psalm 103.3 says that God is the one who forgives all of our iniquities and heals of all of our diseases. See, they, they understood judicial redemption in the Old Testament just like we believe it in the New Testament. Turn over to Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Incredible verse. Colossians 2, verse 13. It says, and you being dead in your trespasses, your sin, and uncircumcision of your flesh, what? He has made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven how many? All. All your trespasses. Having forgiven. It's something that's been done at a point in time and it has ongoing effects. It's not something that has to be redone. You know, somebody said this, when Jesus died on the cross, God pulled all the pages out of all the books that belonged to all that would believe throughout history. He stacked them all together and he nailed them to the cross as if they were the crimes that Jesus had committed. Because see, when they crucified somebody, they would hang his crimes above his head. See, that's judicial forgiveness. It's something that's done once Forever. It can't be changed. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, Who condemns you? Who is it that condemns you? It's not God. God is the highest court in the universe, beloved. And he declares, if he declares us just, then you know what? Who are we to say we're not? Hebrews 10 says very, very clearly there, in verse 10 of Hebrews 10, we're sanctified. You're sanctified by the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. Sanctification is is a process that makes us pure. It makes us holy. It sets us apart. And it says we're made holy. We're set apart by the sacrifice of Christ. When he died and we believed, his sacrifice was sufficient. That's it. We don't need anything else. That's why on the cross when he died, he said what? It is finished. It's over. You don't have to do anything more. So don't be coming in here Sunday thinking you're kind of, you know, rubbing up the God or thinking you're kind of, you know, making yourself look better and God's... That doesn't matter to Him. You have the freedom in Christ to experience forgiveness when you come to Him humbly with a broken heart and you, you claim Christ. Judicially, He forgives you. If we just understand that, if we, could, if, if we could grasp that, it would change the way we live on a daily basis. This prayer, the disciples' prayer, is for a believer. It's for a believer. Some people say it's not, but it is. Because they say, well, why would a believer have to ask for forgiveness You say, well, I'm already a Christian and all my sins are already forgiven. Why am I asking God to forgive me of my debts? And why would God ever say, if you don't forgive somebody, then I'm not going to forgive you? Why would he say that? We're going to look at that next week. Hopefully you want to know the answer, so come back. (laughs) Let's close.